Um, all right, let me, um, let me begin uh, with a prayer. And then there's going to be a test. <laughs> so let's pray. Uh, our Father in heaven, we, we thank you for being able to gather again uh, this evening. Um, we think of our friends who can't be with us tonight, and we ask that you'll be with them. And we pray that you'll teach us tonight um, about Holy Scripture, about your word written, uh, why it matters. And uh, we pray that you'll grow our confidence in it uh, so that we can um, live uh, in it and by it ourselves and so that we are committed to sharing it with others in whatever uh, ways you give us the opportunity to do that. Uh, so please teach us tonight, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, Andy. So um, we're really picking up where we left off uh, last week. Um, we got into part one. Uh, he's talking, uh, we, we saw last time the sources of our knowledge of God, and we saw there's two big sources for the knowledge of God. Uh, we, one of them we call general, uh, or sometimes natural revelation. Uh, general, because it's available to everybody who lives in the world. Natural, because it's available simply by living in the world, okay? And then special revelation, um, or supernatural revelation. It's called special because it comes specifically to God's people. And it's called supernatural revelation because it's revealed supernaturally by God. And it often reveals supernatural things, things that we could never know uh, by simply looking at the world. Um, so my quick test is, um, what, what, what purpose does sort of general or natural revelation have? You know, what's the point of it? What's it, what's it good for? towards the supernatural. Mm, yeah, yeah. So it encourages us to think there's a God there. Let's maybe find out a bit more about him. But we can't do it by ourselves. Let's get some help. Mm -hmm. Brilliant. Other things that general revelation does? There's a big one in Romans 1. So it leaves us without excuse. Romans 1, 19, 20. You know, the invisible things of God have been clearly revealed, they've been manifest, so that people are without excuse. Because instead of following the kind of the, the trail of breadcrumbs that Mike's talking about, instead of even deep doing rightly with the natural revelation that we're given, which is enough to sort of say there's a God and he should be worshipped, we instead ignore that and just live our own way. And so that means that everybody in the world has had a chance, if you like, to believe in God and, and fails to do so. Yeah, okay, brilliant. Uh, but special revelation then is really good because it offers us salvation. Um, so tonight we're looking at Holy Scripture. And Holy Scripture is really special revelation written down for us. Uh, so when we're talking about Scripture, we, that's, that's really a general word that just means a writing. So it's, it's scripted. It's a, it's a writing. So we want to say Holy Scripture probably because that means it's, it's God's writing. It's, it's holy writing. Um, and that's what we're looking at tonight. Now, to kind of really get going tonight, I've got, kind of got three big areas I want to uh, look at, uh, kind of draw out and focus on tonight. The first area comes actually from the end of the chapter. And I think this will show us um, why this really matters. So that he's got a line um, that I think is really helpful, almost at the very end of the chapter. Uh, Hammond says, no words, this is page 40, no words can too strongly express the importance of securing beyond doubt the unsuperseded authority of the sacred scriptures, the holy scriptures, in all religious discussions, whether of doctrine, as of teaching, or of practice, what we do. 
Okay, so he says we cannot put this too strongly enough. We need to be really clear, as people who are growing in our faith, that uh, the authority of Scripture in all religious discussions is, is, is unsuperseded. It's number one. It cannot be beaten. Okay, and what he's saying there, this idea that Scripture is the ultimate authority, that's um, so important that it's got a Latin word for it, a Latin phrase. Um, it's called sola scriptura. So we're saying that scripture alone, sola scriptura, is the only authority ultimately in our faith and in what we do as Christians. And that's a principle that kind of came out of the Reformation. That's kind of when it was most clearly established, although it's all the way through the church. But it was very much recovered and, and, and celebrated at the Reformation. And it's still one of the, probably the, I'd say, the two biggest things that really divides Protestants, evangelical Christians, uh, from the Roman Catholic Church today. The Roman Catholic Church would not believe in sola scriptura, um, but we do. And um, I, I, to kind of unpack this a little bit more, I want to um, come back to an idea that I actually had to leave out of last uh, month's material that he kind of had in the first section, and he comes back to it again um, in this one. And um, he talks about three courts of appeal that you might refer to. It's the Bible, reason, and kind of tradition. And I, I think that's really helpful, but I want to add a fourth potential court of appeal as well. And they're summarized for us in that Brie diagram. So you see those letters spelled Brie. So you can kind of think of this as a sort of a circle of, of, a, of a cheese of Brie, if that's helpful to you. And there's kind of four segments in the, in the circle of, of cheese. So you've got Bible, obviously, that's going to be a source of authority for what we believe and what we do as Christians. You've also got reason, that's the R, uh, what we think, how we can kind of logically work out uh, what should be true. And that's going to be important because God's given us minds to think. Uh, we've also got I, uh, institution, that's talking about the institution of the church. Uh, we could think about church tradition as it's handed on to us, particularly in the creeds and, and uh, confessions of faith. And... Then we've got E, that's the one I want to add, um, and that's for experience. So we often shape, don't we, what we believe based on what we've experienced ourselves. And that's perhaps particularly a, a modern kind of one. Um, now, what I want to say about this is we use all of these for sources of authority to work out what we believe. And that's good. Um, so God's given us minds. God's given us the church, right? It would be stupid to kind of ignore everything that the church has, has, says about uh, what we should believe when we kind of come to think about it. It's, it's sort of a bit stupid to sit down with our Bibles and ignore all the gifted teachers that God has given the church for 2,000 years. It's actually quite arrogant, isn't it, to kind of think we're going to come to better conclusions just by reading the Bible on our own. We're wise and it's appropriate to, to learn from those who have gone before us. Uh, so we want to use all of these uh, to, to, to think about what we should believe. Um, the other thing I want to say about these is that they're not just like binary points. You can kind of swing one way or the other. So you might be a sort of a Bible-believing Christian who, who's quite sort of rationally minded, and that's okay. Uh, or you might be a Bible-believing Christian who's quite institutionally minded and sort of likes what church tradition says. Mark's nodding, that's maybe where Mark is, I don't know. Uh, or you might be an experience-minded Bible-believing Christian. That's all okay. But there are definite lines. There are definite segments between these, okay? And the way that we can know if we move from being in the Bible segment to being in any of the other ones is when our sources of authority conflict, which one do we go with? Okay, so take an example. Um, say you're, the Bible tells us, doesn't it, that God is uh, three persons in one God, the Trinity. Um, 
But reason often, often says to people, that can't be true. There can only be sort of one God. How could you have three in one, right? And then if you, at that point, you're going to have a conflict and you've got to work out whether you're going to go with what your reason says or you're going to go with what the Bible says. So if you've heard of the non-subscribing Presbyterian church, a lot of those have gone with what reason says uh, about that. And they believe that there's only one God rather than being three, three persons in one God. So they don't subscribe to the kind of the creeds and the confession of faith. And they've just said, we're going to put our reason ahead of what the Bible says and what the church has traditionally taught. <clears throat> uh, another one you could do, um, institution. Um, uh, say you believe um, that, um, that there's some sort of purgatory, some sort of chance to improve uh, after death. Um, and say you believe that because your church tells you that you believe that. Well, that conflicts quite clear, clearly with what the Bible says. Um, Hebrews, uh, it's appointed for man once to die and after that face judgment. So again, you've got a conflict. And if you believe, well, even though the church says this, I'm going to believe this because the Bible's clear, then you're in the Bible box. Um, but you might, you can see how you could be in the institution box as well if you're going to let the institution trump the Bible. Okay, so hopefully that's, that's um, clear. Um, I should have flagged up. Um, let's, this principle is important enough, I think, that it's worth getting some Bible verses to, just to support what we're saying here. So group four, I think you were looking at the references for this. Um, so Isaiah 8, could somebody look that up from group four? Uh, somebody who perhaps had a chance to look at John chapter 12, verse 48. Could somebody look up that and, and somebody perhaps tell us about Mark 7, verse 8. Uh, so group four, David, Mark, James McClure, Johnny Sinclair, Mike Patrick. That's good. We've got a good turnout from group four tonight. Uh, so who wants to tell us about Isaiah 8, 19 and 20? David, do you want to kick us off uh, on that one? Because of the teaching and the testimony. Yep. Um, And when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? To the teaching and to the testimony, if they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. Yeah, brilliant. Okay, so lots of kind of religious ideas in Isaiah's day. And Isaiah just says, to the teaching and to the testimony, to God's, God's word. If people won't speak according to what God's word says, they've got no dawn, they've got no light from God, they've got no understanding. It's, it's Bible, uh, Bible, Bible. Okay, John 12, 48, can someone help us with that? <coughs> Will I read it? And that might... Uh... Um, John 12, 48. Yep. There is a judge for the one who rejects me and does not accept my words. The very words I have spoken will condemn them at the last day. Great. What do you make of that, James? How's that fitting in with what we're saying? So this is not directly about scripture, is it? No. But there's this idea of, of um, Jesus' words can judge people. Okay, so if scripture is Jesus' words, and we'll get onto that, um, then they can, they can act as a judge. They're the kind of the final arbiter of, of everything. If we haven't believed them, then we're going to be uh, judged uh, by them. Um, Mark, Mark 7. And I, was, I think perhaps particularly verse 8. Could someone read verse 8 of Mark 7? Do 
man. Yeah, brilliant. So the Pharisees are, um, uh, are teaching all kinds of religious traditions, and Jesus is saying, well, when you do that and you break the commandments of God, that's wrong. So above all religious traditions, and Jesus had respect for, for these guys, but above all religious traditions, it's got to be the commandments of God. It's got to be God's word. Okay? So that's just a few verses kind of illustrating that the Bible box has got to, got to stay the top, the top box for us. Um, I think this is helpful because uh, we do want to be Bible people, don't we, above everything else. I hope, I hope uh, we come away from this with that as our conviction. Um, and I think this is helpful as well because sometimes we look at the church and we see so many divisions and we think, what's gone wrong? And he kind of pointed to this in, the, in last month's material. A big reason that there's so many divisions in the church is not because everyone's reading the Bible and just coming to different conclusions. They're actually reading the Bible through different lenses and some people are trumping the Bible with what their institution says and other people are trumping it with what their reason says okay, or what their experience says. And that's a big part, I would say, of why we have the major divisions uh, between the churches uh, today. <clears throat> Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. yeah. So I have um, a very good friend who's a Catholic, and we've had this sort of discussion, mm. but he always says, well, the church is full of people who've studied the scriptures for years, mm. and if we just let everybody read the Bible, and it's just a recipe for theological chaos, yeah, yeah. and that, you know, everyone's interpretation will not be exactly the same, yeah. and therefore we need a central authority to tell us what's important and yeah. what's true and that we should follow that. Yeah, yeah. Um, there's, yeah, that's, everyone picked that up. I'm sure that was very clearly uh, phrased, Mark. Thank you. Um, just to give an initial thought about that and then we'll, we'll keep going, but we can chat, chat more. Um, got a lot of sympathy with that argument. I think we do want to give a lot of time to the to church tradition. You know, if the whole consensus of the church is saying something and you and your you know, in your study have come up to a different conclusion, you're probably going to be wrong and the whole church is probably going to be right. So, but the idea then of a central, the problem is tradition then is conflicting itself, right? So then the Roman Catholic sort of has to say there has to be a, a kind of a key source of tradition, the magisterium, everybody who kind of says this is what the tradition really says. Um, and I think ultimately we want to say, no, for reason we'll get on to God's words clearer than that. We don't need a magisterium to arbitrate between tradition because we think scripture is clear enough that we'll, we'll, we'll agree on it if we're coming to it with God's help. Uh, that's one, one way I begin to address that. Um, okay, good. Um, let's move on then to the second big thing uh, that I want to talk about, which is the canon of holy scripture. Um, and these two, the next two things I think are really going to help us to, to sort of see why we can be clear, you know, when, when friends are asking the kind of question Mark, Mark's friend is asking, that we can be really clear that it is scripture alone that is the final kind of decisive thing. So we need to think about two things. We need to think about what is scripture, where it comes from, the canon of scripture, and we need to think about the inspiration of scripture. So firstly then, the canon of scripture. The canon we're talking about, in this sense, we're just talking about all those books that are acknowledged as authentic, as holy scripture. So these 66 books and no others, we think, are holy scripture. You can see why that would be important. If, you, if we were reading one that wasn't actually from God, that would be a problem. Couldn't rely on it. If there are other books out there that are from God and we're ignoring them, that's a problem too. We need to be really clear that our 66 are indeed the actual books that God has inspired. So uh, Old Testament canon, we're not going to spend very long on this one. 
Uh, basically, we believe the Old Testament scriptures because Jesus believed the Old Testament scriptures and accepted them as the word of God. And you can see there a, a verse from Luke 24. Jesus says, Everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. <clears throat> now he's pointing there to a kind of a threefold division in the, um, in the Old Testament. And it's amazing, I think, to see that that division that was around in Jesus' day continues still to this day. So this is a, a Hebrew Bible. This is Any Jewish person would say, this is my scriptures, all of it. And you can see on the front cover that there are three words that, they, that, that are the title of this book. So they don't call it the Hebrew scriptures. They call it the, the Torah, the Nevaim, and the Kituvim, the law, the prophets, and the writings. Okay, So you can see clearly two of those are, are the same titles. <laughs> The title for this third section, we call it the writings today because it encompasses lots of different kind of writings. But the first uh, section in the writings and the biggest um, book in the writings is the Psalms. So it looks like Jesus has got the same threefold um, canon, the law, the prophets and the Psalms. He's just got a different title for, for those three. So I find that quite helpful to see Jesus has got the same Old Testament canon that we have and he says it's God's word. Now, New Testament canon, we can come back on that later if we want to. Uh, New Testament canon, uh, we'll spend a little bit longer on. And group two, um, sharpen your pencils. Uh, so there's two things we want to think about that Hammond draws attention to in the New Testament canon. We want to think about the process of writing these New Testament books. And then we want to think about the process of collection. So why do we have any more than the Old Testament at all? Well, uh, he says, number one, process of writing Jesus himself treated his words as on a par with scripture. So he's, he's speaking words that are, that are God's words. So we heard that, didn't we, earlier from John 12. But then Jesus also extends that authority to his ambassadors, the apostles, whether by word of mouth, point two, um, or by letter, point three. So group two people, uh, could somebody help us with John 13, verse 20? And then could somebody help us with 2 Thessalonians 2, 15? Okay and, it, okay, and if you're struggling, that's fine. For the sake of time, just say, and we'll, we'll keep it moving. But Timothy, can you help us understand how, what have you got, the John 13? How does that help us with this? So, it's about God sending people. And they are speaking his words. Yeah, exactly. So it's, it's Jesus in, in this section of John that we're going through on Sunday mornings saying, I'm going to send people out and you're to treat them as you treat me. And, and, and I consider their authority to be kind of an extension of my authority. So that's talking about the apostles. And then chapter two, uh, sorry, 2 Thessalonians 2.15. Is that you, Mark? I had the John 1 of you. Oh, right. <laughs> Sure. 2 Thessalonians 2.15 Then brothers stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us either by our spoken word or by our letter. So that's Paul mm -hmm. sort of claiming that he has that um, authority yeah. that his words um, also between the scripture. Yeah. 
Exactly. So he's saying, yeah, hold, hold on to my word, yeah. yeah. One of the other references where Peter affirms Paul's writings as scripture. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that, that's an excellent one. Two, two Peter three, that one is. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so then, you, so basically, you've got now from Jesus and his words to the apostles' letters, and then those letters start circulating in the churches. They're read as as scripture. But then the question obviously emerges: Well, well, which letters? What if there's fakes out there? And that moves us then into question two about the process of collection. Um, well, I think what Hammond said there was was very helpful. I'm just going to bring it um, a little bit up to date and really agree with it, but just put it from a different slant and point you to the work of Michael Kruger. Um, he's, he's on the, um, the bibliography there. He's got a blog that's got loads of good stuff and he's published books. He's a, he's a professor in um, a seminary in America. So I'll just read you a couple of things from him. So he makes four points uh, in general. He says, number one, there was a core canon from a very early time. And by that core canon, he means 22 out of our current 27 books, everybody agreed on, sort of right from the get-go, as far back as we can go, everybody agreed on the four Gospels, for example, and lots of other books as well. Two, there was dispute about some of the smaller books that took some time to resolve. Three, Christians did continue to find some non-canonical books to be helpful, but they were clear they weren't scripture. And then four, there were some books so off the mark that they were regarded as altogether heretical. Okay, so from a very early point, a lot of consensus about the core books. And then um, another thing that's helpful, he says, by 250 AD, uh, Origen, one of the um, most important early church fathers, uh, was able to list all 27 books of the New Testament uh, in a sermon. And here's what Kruger says. He says, Origen does not offer his list as an innovation or as something that might be regarded as controversial. In fact, he mentions it in the context of a sermon in a natural and matter-of-a-fact sort of a way. So 250 AD, he's able to list off all 27 books that we have today. And um, the reason why that date is helpful is, I don't know if anyone's read The Da Vinci Code. Anyone read The Da Vinci Code? No. Um, Your friends might have done, and they might have read that The Da Vinci Code says, um, the Bible as we know it today was collected by the pagan emperor Constantine the Great. So Christianity became the official religion of the Roman Empire about 325 AD. And the idea is, you know, Constantine said, right, we're going to, none of this kind of pluralism, none of all these kind of different books that you're reading, we're going to have one authorised list, top-down authority, dogma, you know, establishment, bad, bad, bad. And he kind of clamps down on any any opposition. And people say it was a stitch-up. That's where we got our New Testament from, from kind of Constantine coming in and, and doing this. But that was 325 AD. Already in 250 AD, Origen is saying the same New Testament we have, and even go further back, nearly all the books were received straight away, 22 out of 27. So I find that helpful to see that the process of of these books has not been one of the church top-down saying this is what scripture is by some sort of centralised authority, but the church receiving scripture all across the ancient world saying we're reading these books and we're all saying, oh yeah, these are are God's word. uh, so yes, and he talks there about, about sort of three ways that that was determined. Um, the authority of the writers, they were recognised as God's spokespeople. Uh, they were, everybody was convinced that these were authentically written by the apostles. And then the internal evidence, um, they were apostolic teaching and they were self-authenticating. And I just want to underline that last bit. So this is on page 30, um, uh, number two there. 
So Hammond says the books themselves possessed a self-authenticating character in terms of the spiritual impression made by their teaching as deserving to be received, not as the word of men, but as it, what it really is, the word of God. Uh, so that Paul's there, that's a quote from Paul talking about his preaching in Thessalonica. People received his preaching, not as human preaching, but God speaking directly to them. And Hammond's saying that's how the whole New Testament was ultimately put together. People heard God speaking to them through the New Testament. And that's why we have uh, the canon that we have today. Uh, Jesus says, doesn't he, my sheep hear my voice and they listen to me. Um, good. Okay, um, I want to, and it's the same for us too, the John Owen quote there, for those who want to have a look at that, kind of basically says the same thing. The reason we believe that scripture is God's word um, is because in it, we come face to face with God's truthfulness, uh, God's authority, and that impresses itself onto our souls. And that's why we believe it, ultimately. Okay, final one, and I thought this would, we'd have less time for this, and that's okay. The inspiration of Holy Scripture. So how did it get to be God's word? If, if the reason that these books are put together in our Bible is because they've been received as God's word, what does that actually mean? That's a pretty big question. Um, and there's two verses that are really helpful on this. Uh, the first one is 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is God-breathed. So we, um, we often talk about the inspiration of scripture, but literally it's, it's all scripture is God-breathed. So that's helpful because we might not find Chronicles very inspiring. It might not give us the kind of the warm fuzzies when we read Chronicles. But we're not saying that that's necessarily quite how it works. What we're saying when we're saying it's inspired is it's breathed out by God. Okay. Um, and then the other, the other classic verse on this is 2 Peter 1. Men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Now that's tricky, isn't it, to say that scripture is God-breathed, because if we look at it, it does look pretty human, pretty ordinary, we'd have to say. You find genealogies, love stories, legal documents, hymn books, geographical surveys, population statistics. I mean, we saw all this, didn't we, in Nehemiah? And you may be thinking, is this all really God's word? Should we be reading it all out on a, on a Sunday? Um, and this is where we need to think about the mode of, of uh, inspiration. And that quote from Peter is really helpful. He says, men spoke from God. So scripture is genuinely human. It's genuinely men speaking and writing down. Um, and that means it comes with human personalities, human backgrounds, uh, writing in different genres to different audiences, using different languages at different points in history. All of that humanness is definitely part and parcel of scripture. We don't believe that God sort of just beamed down scripture uh, into a cave, which is what Muslims believe about the Quran. Uh, we believe that God inspired people uh, to speak for him. But at the same time, it's also genuinely divine. Men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And again, this is not saying that God kind of necessarily just sort of took over people's minds and gave them a personality transplant. Um, there's a quote there from Herman Bavinck. And he talks about this idea of organic inspiration. It's kind of sort of natural. It's kind of working with, with us as people. So he says, The Spirit of the Lord entered into the prophets and apostles themselves and so employed and led them that they themselves examined and reflected, spoke 
and wrote as they did. So there's no competition between the Spirit's work in the people who wrote Scripture and the people themselves writing Scripture. The Holy Spirit so led them that they themselves used their capacities to write what was God's Word. Okay, uh, we're nearly done. Um, extent, just need to underline, and Hammond does this very well, it's all scriptures God breathed. Not just the red letters, not just the words of Christ that are in some of our Bibles are printed in red. Not just the New Testament, but all of the Old Testament with all the grisly bits and all the genealogies and so on. Not just the bits about salvation, the sort of the core message, all of it's inspired, all the historical details, all of it comes with God's truth and God's authority. So we should sort of have a conversation with us, with, with ourselves, I think, when we're kind of get out, thinking about getting up in the morning. We should sort of say to ourselves, you know, get up, Sam, get up, you idiot. You can hear God speaking to you this morning. And I'll sort of say from my sleep sort of side, well, where can I hear God speaking to me? In the Bible. Where in the Bible? Everywhere in the Bible we can hear God speaking to us. All scripture is God-breathed. Okay, I think we'll leave um, perspicuity. That just means the clarity of Scripture. Um, we're saying Scripture is clear because God clearly communicates his central message to us in the Bible. And it's sufficient. Uh, scripture is all we need to be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Um, and all of that, when you put all that together, that comes to the conclusion then that we don't need anything else ultimately to work out what God is saying to us in the Bible. It's clear. It's sufficient. So scripture ultimately interprets scripture, which means it really is the final and only thing that we need to decide any kind of religious controversy about what we believe or about what we do. Good. Okay, that's a whistle-stop tour there of, um, of those uh, three big things. Any comments just before we go into the questions and our, dis and our group discussion? Any other kind of areas that maybe they'd seen in the chapter that they were thinking about or, or wanted to ask about or were confused about? The only thing I got from your thing is it actually tied everything together. I read it, I read, I read it over about three or four nights, but the hearing, that's like a, effectively a summary. I was relating what I read most recently to what I read at the start and I could find my way through it a lot yeah. more as it is. Uh-huh. Uh -huh. Good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean he does he does pack a lot in and he may yeah, I think David and I felt you get to the end of the chapter and you sort of realise why he's emphasizing all of this. Um and it's all it is all interconnected, this. I think this is one of the reasons why it's good to do theology like this, because you realise <coughs> what you understand about how it's inspired impacts what you understand about how it's becomes to be in the canon. And if you go wrong in how it comes to be in the canon, you're going to go wrong in whether it can be the final authority. So all of these things kind of are like a jigsaw puzzle. You've got to put them together rightly, otherwise you'll, you'll go wrong. So hopefully that's what we can do in these sessions is, is take what he's doing and <laughs> give, a, give an even more kind of uh, compre com compressed view of the kind of the big things. But yeah, it, it, it's, I mean, some of it's not the easiest to, to read, but hopefully he's, 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 um, he's giving us a good overview.